Namaste everyone. This is Abhivadan from Industhink and I'm back with the Industhink season 2. So, uh, I would say it would be quote unquote based as this word has become popular in America and around the world to start Industhink with an interesting uh, episode by starting and actually having a constructive dialogue with one controversial and interesting person who proposes the convergence of dharma and marxism. And we have so Alexey Rhoda Alexey Rhoda is uh, the proposition prop, uh, prop, proponent of the school of the Dharmic Marxism um no comments further as you can check at the rate Alexey Rhoda at twitter and you can know about his sophisticated views on dharma and marxism so alexey uh, welcome to indistinct and to kick off season 2 episode 1 let's begin and let's understand dharmic marxism at the first place hmm. so I have tried I I did actually attend a, a very interesting discussion you and Ruchir had with the emissary Akshar mm-hmm. on Clubhouse and that yeah. actually intrigued me to invite you and Ruchir for this discussion of course okay. we might have Ruchir later and when we we can discuss in detail more about these aspects so uh, of course uh, uh, what we see currently as we call as democratic socialism is not mm-hmm. what it is uh, is not in line with what marxism could be according to your view and uh, you have given some really interesting views about the analytical perspective of karl marx and of course um, in india there there's been a whole history about certain people of who have been marxist ideologues but they have used marxism or try to propose that you know what you can use marxism to basically achieve dharmic goals so how would you you know keep your hypothesis of what is dharmic marxism about the history of certain very specific number of people who have tried to do it and how do you say that what do you say it's a work in progress it has transformed what do you think about it go ahead so definitely i think dharmic marxism is a work in progress and uh, it's something that i have only like i said recently come to embrace uh, because uh, you know some of my some of the people on twitter may know that i used to be quite a died in the wool left liberal like unironically thinking modi is a fascist and all of that stuff i used to unironically think that but i don't think anymore once you get the red pill on that but um you know so it's been a very really recent shift so in that sense uh, the uh, sort of um development of this theory has been pretty nascent but it is coming a long way since what i originally embraced it uh but the reason i decided to embrace it is because um firstly marxism in to me is a set of tools that you can use to analyze situations analyze you know your present material conditions analyze your past and therefore you know show yourself a path towards the future based on your current material conditions and i think it's a very useful and powerful tool um and i try to take marxism as a more of a tool of diagnosis than a tool of prognosis if that makes sense you know like if you want to understand what is happening in for example capitalism or what we are currently under semi feudalism i think marx is very good for understanding that you may not agree with all of his solutions and uh, i personally don't agree with all of his solutions myself you know because the times that he wrote his works in and the solutions he offered then may or may not be suitable to the present conditions especially of a country like india that is not even industrialized to its full potential um so there are a lot of uh, you know sort of different areas one has to tweak and so on so i think in that sense marxism uh, i 
I think is a very useful tool um, to at least understand what we are going through, understand and, you know, other stages of society, like, you know, Asiatic mode of production, feudalistic mode of production, capitalistic and socialistic and communistic modes of production and so on. Um, in that sense, uh, I think this is what Marxism is to me, more of an analytical tool and obviously um, a sort of uh, guidance as to where I would like to see the progression of our nation, that is India. Um, how I decided to merge it with uh, Dharma is a very interesting sort of belief is obviously I have studied in the West and I have seen, you know, in universities, firsthand development and explosion of wokeness in college campuses. And I have completely, you know, uh, astounded by the mental gymnastics these people play to assert their dominance over cultural discourse. And um, the thing about Marxism is it is a materialist philosophy and it believes that every sort of culture war or any sort of cultural issue can be boiled down to material conditions, to its material roots. Um, while this is agreeable to a certain extent, I think that there are some cultural issues that you have to realize do not lend itself to neutrality. I've come to believe there's no such real thing as a neutral institution because the very concept of neutrality that is being propagated today is under the concept of a liberal democracy that says, you know what, have our liberal democratic institutions, have our sort of way of doing things, have our legal system, and then we can guarantee you true neutrality. I don't believe in any such thing called true neutrality in the sphere of institutions and in the sphere of culture. So once I saw the sort of disaster that wokeness is unleashing on America and realize that, you know, what we are is going to see is a trickle-down economics, you might have heard, but trickle-down culture war that is going to descend from America and into our universities, into our schools and into our government and political discourse. And I figured that this is something that is extremely cancerous. And in a way, you know, using my own Marxist analysis, I figured out that this is in fact a form of imperialism in and, in and of itself. And, you know, this was confirmed to me later on when CIA released those videos of, you know, I'm a queer, bi bisexual person of color and I work for CIA and all of those sort of interesting videos that was released. Um, so I realized that, you know, every civilization has an orthodoxy, a cultural orthodoxy. That is something that is completely unavoidable, no matter how hard you try to position yourself as a class first or Marxist or whatever, there are some degree of cultural orthodoxy that retains itself. If you look at Russia, you know, even when it was World War II and, you know, obviously Stalin was deciding to, you know, tear down the San Basil Cathedral uh, and so on, but uh, not the San Basil Cathedral, but, uh, uh, you know, he used to uh, uh, tear down churches, but during the Second World War, um, he sort of revived that entire Christianity discourse in uh, the Soviet Union and portrayed himself as, you know, a savior of Christianity and the savior of the fatherland. And, you know, even Mao, for example, Mao was a nationalist, Ho Chi Minh was a nationalist and so on. So there are certain degrees of cultural discourses that you just cannot avoid and are inherent to your civilization. And the moment I came to this realization, I realized that, you know, a lot of what Marxism allows me to see in my critique of the West, in my critique of capitalism, in my critique of power structures, and in my critique of our current conditions, um, a lot of it can actually, is, is not diametrically opposed to Dharma, Sanatan Dharma, or, you know, the various sort of religions that come under the fold of the Sanatan Dharma, uh, which, you know, maybe Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Sikhism. So in that sense, um, I felt that there is a good way one can combine these both beliefs and, you know, propagate uh, the rejuvenation of our civilization values and at the same time use the Marxist framework to analyze our current conditions and 
chart forward a sort of blueprint of where we could go in the future and how we could go there in the future. Great. I have a question until since I've already mentioned that people should ask questions in the live chat, please do ask questions. If you have any relevant question, uh, not the general questions on uh, you know, wokeness and capitalism, but something which is more about Marxism and Dharma, if I am not able to ask a better question, so people can ask questions. So I have a question for you. Now, hmm. if we understand complex adaptive systems, uh, I posted on Twitter to ask the same question to people, uh, whether ideology slash theology, because I'm talking about Abrahamic mm -hmm. religions and to extreme, even pagan religions, because pagan religions represented that. Uh, theology slash ideology, whether does it show that they are some sort of a strategic mode? It's like having a college building for running your courses or having Zoom as your platform. But mm -hmm. that's in education if you go to, but, but even ideology does that. Uh, eco economic ideologies and political ideologies. So mm -hmm. while, yes, I understand that there are certain uh, Marxist critiques in America also, not the AOC types, but like mm, yeah. genuine critiques, not Jacobin and NYT, yeah, yeah. but yeah, <laughs> genuine critiques who say that the West has a linear form of doing things and that linearity, they just can they can just push it as far as possible, but they can't just avoid it completely. They just can't uh, create, a, they can't just dig out and get out of it. They have to reach that destination. That is the meaningful conclusion. Sometimes people say it is the meaningful conclusion of liberalism. Right. Mm. So, um, but isn't it that, uh, and again, I might be wrong. So I'm not a person who has read Marxism pretty well. So isn't it that uh, Marxism and its uh, byproducts, communism, Stalinism, Maoism, Taoism, of course, there is a nationalist discourse important there. There's a cultural discourse like Joseph Tito and so, so forth. While uh, Nehruian socialism is like Nehruvian welfareism. As far as I understand, and not much of yeah. a socialism, because labor laws were weird. Uh, the labor, the whole labor law system was corrupt. And the there, there was not much industrialization, uh, yeah. and so so forth. So, isn't Marxism also kind of a linear future, which it actually tries to? And of course, that comes to the fact that we have said that you know what? No, 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 you don't need to agree with every solution, but the analytical perspective is clear. So, if you try to exactly. mix and merge it here. How do you see this criticism that uh, uh, dharmic Marxism could turn out to be a linear or a, or a position of a linearity as you propose a kind of complex adaptivity in governance and anything aspect? So what do you think that, about it? That's, a, that's actually a very, very good question. It's something that I have kind of sort of uh, thought of myself. I haven't really delved too deep into it. So my answer may not be as informed to your listeners and I do apologize in advance for it, but I will attempt to give a sort of answer for it. I completely agree that Marx's sort of, uh, you know, walk, march onto the promised utopia of communism is very linear in a way that liberal Whig history is, you know. And it's one of my sort of, as someone who understands a little bits of my own dharmic faith, it's something I find... Uh, something I find I disagree with personally because you know we're not used to that sort of linear scale of time at least in our um, uh, in, in, in our old texts and so on like you know we have the yugs we have the sort of cycles and so on so I mean like I said I'm not very informed on the subject so if I do sound you know if I'm in, if I'm incorrect somewhere please do step in to correct me but um, so I think what uh, you know there was this great author I think uh, you're probably going to bring it to him up later, Satya Bhatt. He was the founder of the Indian Communist Party and is very sidelined by the communists today because he was 
the OG Dharmic uh, communist. You know, he he presented uh, sort of Ram Raja as the fulfillment of communism, and the sort of propulsion of our the Hindu civilization towards Satyug. And uh, you know, there are there are a lot of interesting works he has written. I think one of his you know main explainers of one communism is is something I plan to buy off of whatever sources I can find or read off of whatever sources I can find because he tried his best to, you know, write it in uh, what he calls Saral Hindi, which is easy Hindi. So not the sort of, you know, hardcore Hindi that you find in other books that I absolutely cannot read or understand. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's something I plan to read myself and get a better understanding of. But, you know, you're, you're absolutely correct that Marxism um, sort of builds off of the Whig liberal ideology of linear history of you know sort of the abrahamic sense of uh, a promised utopia a march into a straight line promised utopia and i think that is what is completely different from our cyclical way of understanding time um but i think uh, you know one has to look one has to sort of delve and understand and you know ponder over these things and perhaps i don't know i could be wrong here one could uh, understand time as a sort of cyclical spiral in that sense that to a, to a certain degree it has a sense of linearity which we cannot deny uh, but at the same time, it is still w going in like a cycle, like a fusilli pasta. It is kind of long, but at the same time, it has a spiral. So on one mo at one point of time, you will have, for example, you know, the feudalists are dominating the bourgeoisie. And on the other cycle, you will have the bourgeoisie dominating the feudalists and the workers. And the promised land, the Ramraja, is the uh, sort of liberation of the proletariat and the rule of the proletariat and the abolishment of class but this does not obviously mean the abolishment of hierarchy marx is marx was not an anarchist he was not against the abolition of hierarchy he believed in hierarchy he just believed that class is something that overall through his his own beliefs of material or his dialectical materialism class will seek to abolish itself in the coming time so yeah that's that's basically what my thoughts are right now we have got a question from the audience i find it a generalist question but i'll still read it for you the question is from Prashant. Namaste, Prashant. How do you see industrialization in India going? Will the industries again move to developed countries with AI and robotics coming? I would like to comment on it, but I would like Alexei to comment first. Alexei, you can go ahead. Yeah. So one of the first sort of introductions I had to in middle school or even in high school to industrialization was this flying geese model that you find in business textbooks. And it is how, you know, countries that are leaders in one sort of industrial development adopt new technologies and pass them on to geezers behind them. You know, it's like it's like a sort of it, it goes down to poor, poorer countries and so on. Um, and uh, how do I see industrialization going in India? Personally, I, 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 I'm ex I really really do support the development of the secondary sector i think in my view that is far more important than the development of either two primary or uh, tertiary sectors that does not say that you know there are no issues whatsoever and those sectors should be left alone but i think the secondary sector is sort of like the fulcrum that connects the primary and the tertiary in my view so i think the secondary sector the industrialization it's the pli schemes that have been released by modi i am hopeful for it as i am for anything that india does in terms of pro-industrialization i cannot comment on how successful they will be or they will not be but if they manage to bring success especially in the semiconductor manufacturing that we are thinking of doing which i think sort of answers your ai and robotics questions as well is that india is not just trying the bangladesh way of trying to take in the cheap, you know, low-cost textile cotton industries and so on, making t-shirts and calling it industrialization, you know, end of day, go home. They're saying that 
we want to focus more on the high-end sort of industrial uh, development. And there are some good aspects to it, of course, in that, you know, we are not constantly lagging behind China or America and we're saying, okay, um, you know, we are sort of engaging in our own entrepreneurships, our own industrialization, our own development of technology and our own patents. But at the same time, we have to realize that the bulk of our industrialization as a semi-feudal country will have to come from the lower cost industries that are moving in from China, that are moving in from America, from Europe and so on. Because at the moment, China is sort of offshoring itself to uh, Vietnam. Right. And there is a great possibility, I think, with especially with America, like looking to diversify supply chains, which I'm still skeptical about because a lot of the American capitalist elite are very wedded to the Chinese market, which they do not want to let go. Um, but uh, I think there are some possibilities and some maneuvers we will have to make. Um, overall, at the current uh, current situation, I'm not very excited about the state of industrialization in India, but the future does hold bright, looking at the PLI schemes and looking at the effort the government is making towards semiconductors. And I think one has to realize that, you know, the focus of our development has to be industrialization. And, uh, you know, we already have private sector doing really well with um you know technology and all these startup entrepreneurs coming i think the private sector is doing really well but what really needs state support uh, public sector enterprises and strong financial support is a secondary sector and i think this is where the focus the bulk of the focus needs to be on great um there, there's a question in two parts I think you should answer this and then I'll go to the next portion of it. But yeah, of course, I'll answer. I, I wish to comment on this interesting question. See, yep. as far as uh, as far as industrialization is concerned, I think most of the pointers have been correct by uh, correctly pointed out by Alexa and I agree with them. I think one thing which we need to understand is that in inclusion and integration of a larger population is always important. What happens in our country is that and even if that has to happen, it will take a lot of time. It depends on the states a lot to do. It depends on the kind of governments and of course, you know, focusing on the way quality of life, uh, all of these things work. I think uh, largely that is what it is. Uh, much I am much uh, even if I uh, criticize the Niti Aayog a lot, which I do humbly, uh, I, I think that uh, a lot can be still achieved properly. Now, 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 let me, let me, let me, let me, let me uh, add the two questions by Abhinav Reddy. Abhinav asks, oh, so Alex, I'll just read them out for you, okay? And then you can answer. So, uh, Marx didn't want anything unrelated to class struggle interfere with his idea of communism. Maybe you can understand in gist. Say like feminism, right? Isn't, isn't dharmic revivalism something of same sorts? And yeah. he continues... Wouldn't it interfere with the main goal of materialistic prosperity? Hmm. So now you can respond. That's actually a very good question. And, uh, you know, one, like I said in the beginning of this talk, is that there are certain cultural orthodoxies that you cannot avoid, you know, that you go to America because it is an individualistic culture and atomizing sort of ideologies exist. Their liberalism, their, you know, take individual rights and have as much freedom as an individual wants has led to its natural conclusion of, you know, I can decide what my gender is and you have to accept me for it. A sort of, uh, you know, 
liberal authoritarianism has emerged out of it, which results from individualism. So in that sense, one has to realize that, you know, cultural orthodoxies exist. And this is, like I said, in the beginning of this uh, chat is I, this is where I kind of disagree a little with Marxism in that. Yes, I believe that ultimately what is most important in terms of the economic sphere is class struggle. And I will not disagree with that. But what I do disagree with the fact is that, you know, a lot of Marxists tend to believe that culture world is not important. What this leads to, however, sadly, is that the um, once you said that, oh, you know, culture world does not matter for me, I don't wish to pay attention to it, is that you sort of cede the ground of neutrality to the very people propagating the culture that goes against your own beliefs, right? Now, let's say that there is sort of a ground in India and say, you know, um, they say, I want wokeness in college or I don't want wokeness in college, a Marxist will come and say, I only care about class struggle. I don't care what you do. What this results in is a secession of the ground and empowerment of the Vokes, unknowingly. And as much as the Marxist hates the Vokes, this is sort of what it leads to. So in that sense, I think, you know, when Marx, uh, uh, like I posted a couple of days back, expelled a lot of feminists and uh, pacifists from the International Working Men's Organization in 1871, um, that's what his belief was. But if you look throughout, like I've pointed at the examples of Stalin, the examples of Mao, examples of Tito, they've had to embrace nationalism. They've had to embrace a sort of, you know, basic cultural um, sort of uh, the culture that uh, emits from their own civilizations. Like, you know, Mao had to adapt his beliefs of communism to Chinese traditions, even though he tried to destroy them with the great cultural revolution or whatever. But there has been a, a great effort by the CCP, especially under Xi Jinping, to revive cultural traditionalism, right? And uh, even with Josip Broz Tito and even with uh, Romania, there was a great effort and focus under Nicolae Ceausescu of um, glorifying Romania's great kings of the past. And, you know, in that sense, when Dharma I believe is not incompatible in that scenario. Um, obviously, orthodox class first Marxism is completely is completely opposed to most cultural issues because it sees class as the first, uh, you know, factor. And I what I do agree with it on a lot of uh, sort of issues. Uh, when it comes to the culture, you have to realize that there is no that an orthodoxy has to exist. You either step back and watch the Vokes and the American cultural imperialists take it over, destroy your dharma, and uh, you know then you can cry and you say, oh, what happened? I don't know. Or you can actually fight it back. And the only way to fight it back in India is the assertion of our own traditions, is the assertion of our own um, sort of civilization. And that can only happen through dharma. And that was my only, so that was my belief in adopting dharmic Marxism. Um, okay, uh, another question, and then I'll come to China first. Um, yeah. Question by Jaravas, Jaravasya Arya. Namaste. Mm, so, as I read it, my question is equal to why China doesn't raise per capita of its citizens and bring uh, life standards of people equal to those of Western countries instead of investing tons of money in overseas infrastructure? Okay, one more question if you wish to, because I think then I'll just come on China right away. Okay, and it is a yeah. little bit unrelated question, but I'll just take it up. Yeah, This is by Sushma Pathak. What should we do in India in order to gain the lo lost glory? Okay, it's a broken sentence. Fine. Yeah. Uh, just throughout current foreign constitution. <laughs> please. Oh, my. Okay, fine. Uh, okay, on this, Very base just one question. view. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think I think it's like, see, uh, 
it's like the same problem with you know when we discuss coloniality and colonialism that of course coloniality and colonialism affects us but there's a way of understanding you know uh, the way our realities work this is why we have to test them all together so yeah. i think you can answer these two questions go ahead um i'll start with the second question first because i think the first question you know will offer a nice transition to your question about china so um the second question is yes i think this constitution is very much a limitation upon the potential of our civilization the potential of dharma and the potential of material prosperity and the potential of actual existing socialism coming to our country and uh, you know as much as indira gandhi you know added socialism to our constitution north korea also added democratic people's republic to their name does not make them democratic at all you know so in that sense um, you have to realize that socialism is not just stamping the word socialism and calling yourself socialist it is actually undertaking the necessary changes that are required for the improvement of material prosperity for the people and the proletariat you know so in that sense Yes, I don't want to expand a lot further into this question because it's a very uh, contentious topic, and I've written more about it on my Twitter feed. So the answer to uh, your question about is our constitution a hindrance to our growth and development? The answer is yes, short and sweet. Um, and as for the China question, uh, one minute. I think uh, this, even this question, I, I don't think it's a question, but still fine. It's a sentence within the form of a question. I think Alexey has given the similar response. Mm. So. now alex second go it so yeah yeah, yeah. now so you go china, yeah. the china question is uh, you know the question was why does china invest overseas instead of improving its own material prosperity for its citizens and i think it's a bit of a, it's a balancing act that the ccp is undertaking uh, because uh, you know their experiment with deng shopping thought was in many ways a great success for them and uh, it led to a great form of material prosperity if you look at photos of china in, especially in the 1990s you know it looks like you're going to some sort of the average look going to an average street in you know a small indian town or or in delhi you know there's uh, not the best infrastructure that exists people are sitting on stools and eating uh, in unhygienic conditions and so on so it doesn't look like the china that it exists today and you know i think it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of patience and effort to be able to reach to that stage and that can only be possible when you are improving to a certain degree the living conditions of your citizens and obviously pollution is probably the biggest factor that affects the average chinese middle class um, and that is one of their main um, sort of domestic uh, qualms with the communist party uh, but other, other than that the expansion of housing social housing the expansion of infrastructure roads high speed railways airports education facilities and employment opportunities has been overall beneficial for the chinese and uh, uh, the question of why they uh, you know invest overseas is because they have to keep the growth rate moving forward that is basically the only sort of situation and uh, it has to be getting the higher returns on capital and this again comes from a sort of marxist perspective is that uh, once a certain degree of development has been achieved then it's actually pretty basic economics as well now is that your rate of return will obviously decrease as you know there is less like absolute in absolute terms your you know your growth in gdp will increase but your 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 rate of return your growth etc overall the percentage will slightly decrease and this is where they have to expand outwards they have to expand to africa which is a very you know untapped market they have to expand to other you know the belt and road initiative and that is something that is the you know the economic way of achieving what americans did with manifest destiny and the westward expansions and uh, 
this is basically the Chinese version of doing the same with economics and less so with territory. And, uh, you know, and this China is at the same time ensuring that if it can get this Belt and Road Initiative going fine, it can get itself a stable rate of economic growth, even a 5% growth every year with their current economic size is actually a very, very high growth rate for a country like China. Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, they're investing more in social welfare programs that they have neglected under the Deng Xiaoping era. Uh, for example, you know, to set an example for citizens of China to have more than one kid, the one of the new uh, sort of rules that the Chinese Communist Party released was new members of the party must have at least three kids as party members will then be role models for Chinese citizens. Because if party members have three kids, normal people would at least have two kids. And as long as your fertility rate is between the two and three, you are A, not overgrowing and exploding your population, and B, you're above replacement rate, so there is a great sense of stability. Because they don't want to you know, have the massive time bomb of old people that retire with very few young people. If they manage to pull it off, there is absolutely nothing that can destroy China, in my, in, in my honest view. Um, you know, but uh, it'll be very hard to do because it takes a lot of time and effort. And a great example of that is Viktor Orban in Hungary. His pro-natalist policies have yielded results, but they're at the moment are sort of slow. But we will have to see. Like, you know, Hungary's uh, total fertility rate was of around 1.36 children per mother. It has jumped to 1.56 in the span of about four years, which is a four or five years, which is, in my view, a very high sort of growth. If it can at least get to a 2.1 in Hungary, it would be, it would, I would consider it a success, which is the replacement level of fertility. Uh, we have to see the same in China because China's fertility rate is even lower. It is a very, very low fertility rate for a country, especially, you know, in terms of per capita development. So there is great effort by the Chinese to ensure that, you know, social welfare policies are instituted to the effect that they help parents in giving birth to children. Like, for example, banning private tuitions that ensures that, you know, you're not in the cramming environment that so many Chinese students are used to. There is less mental pressure, you know, more focus on fitness and less focus on video games makes, you know, parents believe that if I have a kid and I leave him alone, there is a greater chance he will be playing football with his friends downstairs than playing video games or Call of Duty. And, uh, you know, so stuff like that, I think the social welfare is very targeted in China towards the expansion of a healthcare and be uh, pro-natalism. And this is where, you know, to address that point of yours is, a, China is expanding outwards because it needs higher return on investments. And B, it's using that opportunity to reconfigure its society and move away from the Deng Xiaoping era towards a more welfare state. Yeah. Um, one question, I think, worth answering if you wish to. Short one by Sushma Bhattak again. Is a Western democracy also a hindrance to our overall development? I think... You can answer in one line if you yeah, wish to. Yeah, it's a and then pretty clear answer. The answer is yes, because using the institutions of Western democracy do not sort of, they don't work well with our culture and our belief. Okay. Uh, I think there's some mic issue with Alexei. So I think uh, he'll come back. So you were, uh, so Alexei, I can't hear you. Maybe uh, you can uh, change your mic on the option, cam mic option. So I think uh, viewers, you can ask questions, uh, but ask some unique questions, you know, like uh, much of their questions are of similar nature. And I think you can find the similar responses by Alexei, um, um, you know, on Twitter. 
So, um, okay, let me get back to Alexa. Alexa, can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I can hear you. Now, it works now. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Like I said, you know, we don't like to be lectured about human rights, and not the institutions of Western democracy are not the best suited for our civilization. So, short and sweet answer, yes. Great. Now let's get to China right away to uh, make a context to discuss further about Indian diplomacy and Indian public policies goals. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. And I think on this note, I would like to end with this question. And then, of course, once we discuss with Ruchir, if possible, I don't know when in future, you know, this viewers must think about this because, see, I understand the criticism that people give, okay, on China and, mm. you know, the hashtags and Xi Jinping and the CCP. And even now, Indians have realized that even Joe Biden should not be spared of it because of, you know, the trips waiver issue or Afghanistan or, you know, the democracy summit, which utterly failed. Similarly, simply because uh, the, the, the uh, you don't use ideology in international relations like that. If you yep. try to do, <laughs> you de develop, you will deliberately fail yourself. And that's yep. what happened with the United States, sadly. Which, anyways, is a different question. So, what I see generally is that there was, uh, yep. at a strategic level, of course, India is dealing with Pakistan and China. With Pakistan, much of our approach is still very better, very clear, very, very nuanced. Yep. With China, I see a problem that, uh, as far as the Galwan conflict was concerned, and now, of course, whatever is happening in Ladakh and... Uh, Mm, you know, uh, I would say uh, Arunachal Pradesh, which are mm. more critical areas right now, the land borders. Uh, we see that uh, the Indian authorities are trying to normalize the situation in their own way. That okay, fine, it's just going on with China, but there's still a thing which it does not add up. Now, mm. what happens with the Indians' understanding, which I do not like, is that we sometimes forget this that while while we understand, I had a discussion with this one author who wrote about China. He constantly reports about CCP and their hearings every year, every mm. day. Uh, he says that we do not understand China simply because we think that it's all about uh, the 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 authoritarian quote unquote authoritarian imposition of power values by the CCP, which mm. is partially correct. That is house of power and other values are used, but yep. at the same time, there's a sense of practicality. And that is something which may be a case that a Ministry of External Affairs, because the Ministry of External Affairs is a very big ministry. And of course, it represents diplomats all across the world. The thing which I uh, find it weird is that while China has an institutional alternative consideration, India does not show that up. And even America has an institutional consideration that, okay, fine, if you want the American international law way here we have, China says you have the Chinese international law way we have, you, even European Union. But we are like somewhere down the line, Antony Blinken ko bhi sambhal lete hain, achha thik hai, hum dara ye Shri Jinping yeah. ko bhi sambhal lete And we are like, hum phase huye hain, to achha, main samajhta hon that there's something called mediation in that sense, but too much reconciliation also doesn't help. If you would really want to become, and I think it is evident from two statements, and I wish to mention that. First, by hmm. uh, the head of war himself, where he said in Berlin, Samir Saran, that <laughs> India is actually pursuing non-alignment with Berlin, which is interesting. And number two, by Minister Jay Shankar, that India needs to focus on domestic supply chains in the Global Technology Summit. So it shows that India wants to be a neutral power, doesn't want to ally anyways. Mm -hmm. What do you think about it? And then we can wrap it up. 
And uh, if you wish to take this one, because this is related to China fast, this is why Jarawa se area, and I don't wish to take it further. But yeah, adding furthermore, China increasing per capita slowly owing to stop hyper individualism that can become a bane to CCP. As I know, growth of materialism persuades an individual to acquire more freedom. Now you can go ahead and then we can conclude. Yeah. China increases slowly. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of, uh, I mentioned this a couple of days back as well, is that um, a lot of people still think that the Chinese people want democracy. Uh, but, you know, if you have material prosperity and your GDP per capita is, you know, increasing 30 times over the course of 30 years, you know, the last thing you would care about is human rights and your liberal democracy and whatever, because your living standards are increasing and you can, you know, there are countless videos every day that, you know, I see from my friends on Chinese Twitter is that, you know, there are people openly scolding party officials in the local area, in the police officers. So there is, it's not like, you know, I'm not saying China is democracy, China is not democracy, but there is a certain sense of, you know, belief that citizens in China have that they can get things done the way they want it to be done. It's not like they're being overpowered by local policemen and so on, you know. So in that sense, you know, the hyper-individualism is something the CCP wants to stop. Agreed with that sort of statement made in the question. But, um, you know, it's not like they're completely repressing, in my view, the citizens. Because if you look at videos on the local level, a lot of people literally just harass police officers for doing their duty. Like, it, <laughs> so it's pretty insane. But, um, you know, I think going back to your question about our strategy in the Indo-Pacific with China and America. And I think it goes back to the risk-averseness of our bureaucracy, of our foreign service. You know, we don't want to take risks. We are too scared to offend anyone in our in our, uh, in my view like i think the biggest sort of uh, statement that i've heard so far is i think uh, minister jeshanka said about uh, you, you know how they're lecturing us about human rights and we actually don't really care anymore so uh, that was i think he said in public sometime but um, i think that was a very very welcome statement to hear from someone at the top brass of the indian foreign service or any member of the indian bureaucracy whatsoever and, uh, you know, this is sort of the attitude I think we need to develop. These are baby steps. It'll take time. But I think, you know, as much as we can be sort of angry about, not angry, but like, you know, sad and dejected about the fact that we don't offer an alternative vision in the Indo-Pacific. You know, we don't offer an India plus ASEAN vision to counter China and America's hegemonistic claims in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we have to realize we don't have the material we don't have the material capacity to enforce any sort of vision. We can't enforce any vision of India within India itself. You know, how are we going to enforce anything in the Indo-Pacific? And this is where I have to take a line from Deng Xiaoping is that we have to lay low and bide our time and strike when the time is right. And I think this is what we have to do. And, you know, in that sense, I I like to trust the plan, so to speak, about the uh, with Jay Shankar's foreign minister is that, you know, he can make those nice short statements that say you know what we don't really care about your human rights uh, sort of sermoning anymore and at the same time keep a clear focus we want to focus on supply chains we want to focus and ensure that india has domestic stability with regards to supply chain and that combined with the focus on industrialization is going to be miles 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 better than you know kanging about vishwa guru or jambu dweep or something like you know it's good to have that sort of ideology it's like it's like a painting for a vase but ultimately, if you if you have all you have is paint and no vase, then the, neither the paint nor the vase is useful. So that is what my belief is: build a vase, then apply the paint. Anyone will buy it. Simple. Yeah. And to conclude this in a, on a very happy note, since I think that it turned out to be a base discussion. Yes. Yes. Is that uh, <laughs> that interestingly? I think um, 
we are trying to pursue a sense to make india a neutral hub for many things like balaji shrinivasan the crypto guy you know a very avid investor of web3 says that india should be a neutral hub for technology same applies for arbitration same applies to even other forms of things like environment and not climate change propaganda but literally yeah. environment related because india has just some amazing models to uh, show it up and i think uh, jashankar is right because i think uh, if we see since uh, 2016 and so so forth and not because of trump but it's like uh, all of the so called uh, things which happened all across the world was about you know either local communities Hmm. or it was about indigenous communities in india it is the both local and indigenous at the same time as we say the bhartiya people so yeah. uh, i think uh, that boom is something which itself india knows that it has to forge it and that's why i see the vaccine policy under the current government amazing like the nasal vaccines come in yeah and even the, the 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 drdo made drug is going to come in senior citizens are going to get i think from january 3rd or 10 you know the next vaccine which is a yeah. uh, uh, the booster and i and it's not it's not the... mandatory it's not mandatory you know a lot of those western countries mm. talking about human rights it's not mandatory and if you want to get it that's yeah. fine that's basically like you know exactly. if you want to get the vaccine get the vaccine it's fine i'm not against yeah. it you know but it's that you're enforcing it and it's causing a lot more issues than it's solving more you know problems especially in america especially in massive yeah. protests in europe so the yeah. policy of the government especially in terms of nurturing domestic vaccine production uh, rejecting mm. foreign dominance of our market and at the same time having sane vaccine policies that are not mm. you know oppressive but are like encouraging vaccine policies it's going miles is going miles is doing wonders exactly the point so with this we conclude uh, thank you so much viewers and thanks to those who will being watch this session thank you alexey for a base discussion and we look forward to discuss from there this point about china and our lack of strategic consensus and i leave the viewers with this note on this note So let's see what Richard thinks about it. Although we know what yeah. Richard thinks about it, but I think we should do more about you know both of them think about it. So <laughs> okay, so we end this discussion. Thank you so much, and uh, I think it was a great discussion. Namaste.